We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. And away we go. Episode 130 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Wednesday, August 25th, 2021, the day after a big day at Washington football team headquarters in Ashburn. Not only a practice in preparation for Saturday evening's preseason finale against the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field at 6, not only the usual Ron Rivera post-practice press conference, but also a Ryan Fitzpatrick post-practice press conference, and a Chase Young post-practice press conference. We have a lot to sort through, but sort through it all we shall because no show or podcast gives you the audio, the analysis, and the tomfoolery that you need to hear regarding the Washington football team like the Al Galdi podcast. Hello and welcome to a Wednesday installment of the pod. It's good to be with you, however you are listening. It's great to have you with us, however you are with us. Some of you listen first thing in the morning. Some of you listen later in the day. Some of you listen in the car. Some of you listen in the kitchen. Some of you listen at the gym. Some of you listen on Apple Podcasts. Some of you listen on Google Podcasts. Some of you listen on Spotify. Whenever, wherever, however you listen, I say thank you to you. 
Does the Washington football team have its best receiving core since 2016s? I'm going to explore that next segment. The 2016 receiver group, as you likely remember, was the last truly great group of receivers for Washington. Pierre Garcon, Deshaun Jackson, Jamison Crowder, all were really good that season. Could it be, might it be, that this season's Washington receiving core will be the best since that 2016 Washington receiving core? Maybe better than that 2016 Washington receiving core? Question mark? Uh, Of course, Curtis Samuel actually being available would be nice. Hopefully, he will be come week one against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field. Ryan Fitzpatrick on Tuesday addressed Washington's first-team offense having not yet scored a touchdown this preseason. We'll get into that. And Chase Young on Tuesday discussed something that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. He wasn't healthy for a good chunk of last season, and yet he still did what he did. What might that mean for him? this coming season. In other words, if he was as good as he was last season, despite not being healthy for a sizable portion of the season, how great might he be this coming season? The Nationals on Tuesday promoted their potential ace of the future, Cade Cavalli, to AAA Rochester. Might we see him pitch at the major league level this season? I'll talk Cade and the latest exploits of potential Nats building blocks in a 5-1 win at the Miami Marlins on Tuesday night. And yes, I will talk Orioles. You know, what everyone is focusing on is their losing streak reaching 19 games with a 14-8 loss to the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Tuesday night. But what I'm going to focus on, and what you, if you're an O's fan, should be focusing on, is something else that happened on Tuesday. MLB Pipeline ranking the Orioles farm system as the best in baseball. That, my friends, is what truly matters. Pain now, pleasure later. Honestly, this 19-game Orioles losing streak That matters about as much as the Baltimore Ravens 19-game preseason winning streak, okay? There's a phone call topic for Baltimore Sports Radio. Which matters more, the Orioles' 19-game losing streak or the Ravens' 19-game preseason winning streak? You tell me. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Dr. Sabah, who loves herself, some Taylor Heineke. Writes the good doctor, why are we wasting time and reps to develop Fitz, parentheses, 17th year, instead of giving all reps to Heineke, parentheses, or even Allen, to see what he develops into? Well, thank you for the email, Sabah. So the reason would be that Washington thinks that neither Taylor Heineke nor Kyle Allen is promising enough to where he is worthy of getting the majority of first-team practice reps in an effort to develop him, especially with Heineke. I think that Ron Rivera and the coaching staff are intrigued. I think that they want to see more, but they're clearly not sold enough to where they feel like he's worthy of truly going all in on to develop. And so the onus is on Heineke to change their minds. He overall has played well over the two preseason games so far. Honestly, I think Washington not believing in Heineke has a lot to do with the durability issue. I don't think this has to do so much with whether he can play. He can play. The issue is, can he stay healthy? The guy's been hurt a ton in his NFL career, and that's with very limited playing time in the NFL. But I do believe that if Ryan Fitzpatrick struggles this coming season, we will see Taylor Heineke 
as Washington's starting quarterback. Washington signed Fitzpatrick to a one-year contract. This is not some long-term commitment. You know, people make a big deal out of it. Well, Washington gave Taylor Heineke this two-year contract with very little guaranteed money. That's true. But Fitzpatrick is only on a one-year deal. And yes, it's for $10 million, but it's a one-year deal. And Washington has a ton of cap space. So if Fitzpatrick ends up not playing a lot this year for whatever reason, that's not the end of the world. If things aren't going well with Fitzpatrick, there's no reason not to pivot to Heineke if he's healthy. You know, there's a portion of the fan base in media that loves to bash Heineke. I don't get it. All this guy does is look good in games. I really don't care that he's not a great practice player. The games are what matter. He has played in four games for Washington. The relief outing of Dwayne Haskins in Dwayne's final game with Washington and that loss to the Carolina Panthers at FedEx Field in Week 16 of last regular season, the loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wildcard round last season, and now the two games so far this preseason. And you know what? Taylor Heineke has looked good to varying degrees in all four of those games. There's a lot to be said for that. Well, before we go any further, guess who said what on Tuesday? Yeah, you guessed it. Ron Rivera, again, gave us the phrase that pays. Ron, at his post-practice press conference, got asked about the process by which he and the front office determine who makes the season-opening 53-man roster, and Ron's answer included the following. Well, you know, we're going to look at everything. Obviously, you look at your starting group first, then you look at your, 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 who, your, who you believe your primary backups are. Um, you look at guys that are potential primary backups, and then you also talk about position flex for those guys. Yes, there it is. Position flex. Ron cannot help himself when it comes to position flex. But John Grandland of Real Broker can help you with what he offers, commission flex. Listen up. If you're looking to sell your home, the days of some flat commission rate, regardless of how easy it is to sell your home, are over. John G. is changing the game with his groundbreaking concept of commission flex. What is commission flex, you ask? Well, it's simple, actually. Flexible commission rates. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. John Grandland will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Grandland has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, you heard that right. For free, zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Grandlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house and give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar. And maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn. If you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going. If you're even just thinking about selling your home, do yourself a favor and call John Grandlin. This is a phone call that could make and or save you tens of thousands of dollars. You have nothing to lose. Call John G now, 703-537-6747. When you talk to John G, make sure that you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and make sure that you ask John G about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, Commission Flex. That phone number again, 703 
47 or visit John G sells for free.com. That's John G sells for free.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the originator of Commission Flex. Position Flex? Yes, Ron, just like Position Flex. All right, so the Washington football team did cut five players on Tuesday to get down to the mandatory 80 by the 4 p.m. Eastern deadline. Nobody significant was cut. And so next up is the cut down to 53. This Tuesday, August 31st at 4 p.m. Eastern is the deadline by which each NFL team must cut down to 53 players. Washington on Tuesday practiced at its team facility in Ashburn in preparation for Saturday evening's preseason finale against the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field at 6. Ron Rivera, Ryan Fitzpatrick, and Chase Young all spoke via post-practice press conference. Three significant Washington players who were not at practice on Monday were at practice on Tuesday. Deami Brown, Cameron Curl, and Khalid Hudson, but neither Curtis Samuel nor William Jackson III was fully practicing. So the wait with Samuel continues. The longest ramp up in the history of ramp ups continues, and Jackson continues to inconsistently practice. Samuel coming off a groin injury, Jackson a leg injury, a Charlie horse, as Ron Rivera described it not too long ago. Here was Ron at his post-practice press conference on Tuesday on if he is worried at all about Samuel and Jackson missing team drills this deep into the preseason. Well, I, I mean, the, the truth of the matter is you're going to play with who's available. And, and so if those guys are available, great, we're going to play with them. Do I want them out there? Absolutely. Um, am I going to fret about it? No, because the truth of the matter is you play with who's available. And that's all I can do. You know, that's all we can do as a football team. Uh, that's all we can do as an offense or a defense or a special teams. We're going to play with the guys that are available. Um, but, but, but do I want them out there? Absolutely. I'd love to have everybody ready and available for when it comes to game one. And also addressing the Curtis Samuel situation on Tuesday was Ryan Fitzpatrick at his post-practice press conference. Uh, I mean, with, with Curtis, you know, when he's ready to ramp up and go, uh, you know, he, he will be. But right now, it's to me, it's great work. Whoever's out there, because uh, it's not going to happen. You're not going to go the whole year without having injuries or guys, you know, whether they get banged up on a play or they're out for a few games or somebody gets put in a key situation and has to make a play, I got to be able to trust those guys. So, um, you know, when he's out here, it's great. When he's not, I just feel like that's a great opportunity for me to get to know the other guys better. So with the other guys, Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Tuesday addressed two of the other guys in particular, Antonio Gandy-Golden and Dax Milne. We'll start with AGG. Washington took AGG in the fourth round of the 2020 NFL Draft out of Liberty. And AGG had a lost 2020 rookie season. He played in just six games. He totaled just one reception on three targets. AGG was on Washington's reserve injured list from October 24th, 2020 to December 26, 2020. So for more than two months, due to a hamstring injury that was suffered in the 2019 loss at the New York Giants in Week 6, AGG in his first game back, the 2013 loss to the Carolina Panthers at FedEx Field in Week 16, had no receptions on three targets and playing on 83% of Washington's offensive snaps. He then was inactive for Washington's 2014 win at the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday Night Football in Week 17 to clinch the NFC East, and for the 31-23 loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the Wild Card round. AGG wasn't even active for Washington's two most important games last season. 
There actually was a good bit of hype for AGG entering last season, even though he was a fourth round pick, but he ended up having a nothing burger of a rookie season. So what now? Ron Rivera on Tuesday on AGG. We were really, really pleased with what we got last week. You know, he had a, he had a rough outing the first game. Last week, he bounced back very well, handled the tough situation. So, uh, again, he's a guy that has a skill set we like. He plays a position we're, 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 we're obviously interested in. Um, and, again, we'll go through this final week as, as we prepare because there's, you know, a lot of guys that we got to consider. Yeah, some strong praise there from Ron on Tuesday for Antonio Gandy-Golden. AGG was a very productive receiver at Liberty, including over his last two seasons, 2018 and 2019, which were at the FBS level of Liberty having been in the FCS. AGG in each of his two FBS seasons had at least 71 receptions, at least 1,000 receiving yards, and exactly 10 touchdown receptions. AGG in 2019 was number four in the FBS in receiving yards at 1,396 and was number five in the FBS in first down receptions at 60. And Washington taking Antonio Gandy-Golden in the fourth round of the 2020 NFL Draft was widely praised. ESPN NFL front office insider Lewis Riddick on the ESPN ABC telecast the day three of the 2020 draft called Washington taking AGG a, quote, spectacular pick by the Redskins, end quote. Daniel Jeremiah, who I think is one of the better NFL draft analysts, he works for NFL Network and NFL.com, he labeled Washington's selection of Antonio Gandy-Golden as the best value pick in the fourth round of the 2020 draft. Jeremiah had Antonio Gandy-Golden as a number 79 overall player in the 2020 draft, but AGG went at pick number 142. And then there's Dax Milne, who Ron Rivera just keeps praising. I mean, this has become impossible to ignore. Ron, at his post-practice press conference on Monday, was asked who had impressed him over Washington's first two preseason games, mentioned Dax Milne, and then this was Ron on Tuesday on Dax Milne off getting asked about Dax. Well, you know, first off, you know, when we watched him coming out of college, he caught a lot of footballs. Uh, he did a lot of things for BYU, and so we know he's a, he's a quality football player. Uh, he got here and it wasn't too big for him. That, that was one of the first things that stood out. Secondly is he's very competitive. He competes all the time. Um, he's a very bright, smart football player. Uh, and he's got, he's got a skill set that suits us very well. So we're, we're very intrigued by who he is as a football player. So there was Ron again on Tuesday. High praise for Dax Milne. Washington took Milne with its third seventh round pick in the 2021 NFL Draft. Dax does not have great measurables, but he at BYU did have great production. Milne was BYU's number one receiver in the 2020 season, which featured Zach Wilson at quarterback. Milne had 70 receptions for 1,188 yards and eight touchdowns on 91 targets, 16.97 yards per catch. And Dax Milne is an option for Washington on punt returns. He in the preseason opening loss at the New England Patriots on August 12th had a third quarter 19-yard punt return. And so you take a step back and you think about Washington's receiving core. Washington figures to keep at least six receivers on its season opening 53-man roster. Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, Cam Sims, Adam Humphreys, Deami Brown, and Antonio Gandy-Golden. I still believe there will be a seventh receiver, maybe DeAndre Carter, maybe Dax Milne. And so I have wondered, and I'm guessing more than a few of you have wondered, does Washington finally have a truly good and truly deep receiving core?
Washington already has released Kelvin Harmon and Steven Sims Jr. Now, not that they were Art Monk and Gary Clark, but as I talked about on Tuesday's show, episode 129, it was less than two years ago that we thought that Harmon and Sims were two potential building blocks for Washington. Yes, it turns out that we overestimated Harmon and Sims, but also, yes, them being released already is a function, at least in part, of Washington now being better at receiver. Now, the problem with saying that Washington is truly deep at receiver is that the depth is mostly theoretical. Curtis Samuel has only had one truly big season. Adam Humphreys has been plagued by injury in each of the last two seasons. Cam Sims is talented and can be productive, but he's inconsistent. Deami Brown is a rookie. Antonio Gandy-Golden is coming off a lost rookie season. There are things to like, really like, about each of those five guys, but if you're being honest, each guy is a question mark to at least some extent. The only proven certifiable stud in Washington's receiving core is Terry McLaurin. Despite NFL Network's uh, worthless NFL Top 100 not having Terry on the list, but having Cole Beasley at number 96 and Corey Davis at number 91. So if you are skeptical about Washington's receiving core, if you say to yourself, I am nowhere near ready to proclaim this to be a truly good and truly deep Washington receiving core, I hear you and I get it. But here were Washington's top receivers last regular season in terms of offensive snaps. Terry McLaurin, Cam Sims, Steven Sims, Isaiah Wright, Dontrell Inman, Antonio Gandy-Golden, Robert Foster, Jeff Bedette, and Tony Brown. As former Washington head coach Steve Spurrier once said, Not very good. Uh, yeah. Here were Washington's top receivers in the 2019 regular season in terms of offensive snaps. Terry McLaurin, Kelvin Harmon, Trey Quinn, Paul Richardson, Stephen Sims, Cam Sims, Robert Davis, Darvin Kidsey. Not very good. Uh, yeah. So I know that we're not comparing Washington's 2021 receiving core to, you know, the days of the posse, but it does appear, does it not, that Washington has a depth at receiver that the team has not had in quite some time. It's been a while since Washington had a truly good receiving core, a truly deep receiving core. You really have to go back to the 2016 season for the last time that Washington had a truly good receiving core. That was the season in which Pierre Garçon, Deshaun Jackson, and Jamison Crowder all had big seasons. And then behind them were Josh Doxson, although he was barely healthy that season. That was his rookie season during which he had all of those Achilles problems. Uh, But Washington also had guys like Ryan Grant, one of Jay Gruden's favorites, and Maurice Harris. And by the way, Washington also got very good seasons from its top two tight ends, Jordan Reed and Vernon Davis. You know who was great in that 2016 season, although he wasn't great in week 17. I'm a little bit more process-oriented. Yes, Kirky, we know. But anyway, just talking receivers, Washington's 2021 receiving core, to me, has the chance to be Washington's best receiving core since at least that 2016 group. We shall see. It's that time of year in the NFL, a time in which hope springs eternal. This also is a time of year in which we're exposed to the sun quite a bit. That's a good thing. You need your vitamin D, but obviously too much sun exposure can be a bad thing, can lead to skin problems, including skin cancer. 
If you have questions about your skin health or if you're dealing with skin cancer, contact Dr. George Verghese. He is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He's also a big fan of this podcast, and he's a big fan of the Washington football team, and he's a true fan, not some fair weather fan. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. And specific to that, Dr. George Verghese and his institute offer something that's a game changer, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT is an option. And Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301 396 3401. Make sure that you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. And the Washington football team's quarterback spoke on Tuesday via post-practice press conference. Ryan Fitzpatrick was at the podium. The beard, who no longer has the white guy afro, got a haircut, a fade cut a few days back. So with Fitzpatrick so far this preseason, two games, six offensive drives, a yards per completion of 12.83. That's great. But he has yet to lead a touchdown drive. Fitzpatrick in the preseason win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field on Friday night was mixed. Uh, He was off on a throw to Adam Humphreys in the end zone on a third and 10 shotgunning completion. That was on the drive that resulted in Dustin Hopkins late first quarter 34-yard field goal that tied the game at three. That Fitzpatrick incompletion intended for Humphreys came up during Fitzpatrick's presser. Here he was on Tuesday on the state of Washington's offense with him at quarterback. Uh... I mean, it's just a constant process every day, just going out there and doing it. And, you know, I think the the preseason games are good in that there's not a whole lot of preparation. You go in there, you see some different looks than what you've been seeing, you know, throughout training camp. And it just, you put that one away, file it away, missed it for whatever reason, and you move on. But, uh, you know, I've missed plenty of throws in my career. I'm sure that wasn't going to be the last one, but you'd like to – find out the why was it just a bad throw was it technique was he not in the place I thought he was going to be and you kind of go from there and you, you just work it out gotta work it out we know that preseason game results don't matter but what about preseason performance results does it matter to Fitzpatrick that the offense hasn't done much scoring or even had many red zone possessions so far in the preseason uh, I, I mean, I, I don't really, good or bad, don't really put too much stock into it. You know, part of it, when we get when we get into the season, you know, we're going to rely more on certain playmakers. We're going to have certain schemes. Uh, there's just different things that we'll do. So it would be nice to be able to do some of that stuff in the preseason, but I don't, I don't think it's that big of a deal right now. 
The dance that we're dancing right now is danced at this time every year, the preseason. Does this matter? Does that matter? What should we make of this? How should we assess that? And the truth is, we have no idea what matters and what doesn't until we get to the regular season. And then everything is retroactive. Well, it turns out that that did matter. Well, it turns out that that didn't matter. We don't know. That's the madness that is the NFL preseason. Some of the things we see do matter and are telling. Many of the things we see don't matter and are not telling. It is impossible to differentiate in the preseason as the preseason is happening that which matters and that which does not matter, that which is telling and that which is not telling. There is no process. There is no formula for that. You don't know until you know. And this is what we go through every year this time of year when it comes to the NFL. So Washington has one preseason game left, this game against the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field on Saturday evening at 6. Ron Rivera on Tuesday at his post-practice press conference again said that playing time for starters for Saturday evening still had not been determined. Does Fitzpatrick want to play against the Ravens? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think for a quarterback, it's good to take take a few shots, one or two hits, just to kind of get the body back into it. I think just breaking the huddle, getting in and out of the huddle, looking at the play clocks, um, just making sure everybody's on the same page with the communication, and that's about where it stops for me. And so, you know, I'm, I was satisfied kind of with the first game and how we're able to do some of that. Second game was the same way, and, and you wish you go out there and you score on every drive, but uh, I'm, I'm satisfied with what's happened so far in preseason. Yeah, I noted this off last week's Ryan Fitzpatrick post-practice press conference. He doesn't seem to be in love with playing in the preseason. Like a lot of us, I'm sure he can't wait for the preseason to be over. I mean, Ryan Fitzpatrick has been there and done that, right? This coming season will be Fitzpatrick's 17th NFL season. Washington is his ninth NFL team. You could say that old Fitzy has been around the block. Does he get a feel? around this time of year for whether the team he's on will be any good in the coming season? Uh, no, I mean, it's always it's always tough. I mean, at this point of the year, everybody's optimistic, right? I mean, everybody's excited for the season to start. Um, I, I do think just from that, and I talked about this from the moment I got here, that the vibe and the feeling in the building, uh, there's a lot of confidence in our building. And so uh, that part of it I'm really excited about. So here's something about Ryan Fitzpatrick that we learned this week. He and Dan Marino are boys. They're homies. Uh, Marino was on the Sports Junkies on 106.7 The Fan on Monday and had a lot of nice things to say about Fitzpatrick. Makes sense, right? Fitzpatrick was on the Miami Dolphins the last two seasons. Marino, of course, is the greatest quarterback in Dolphins history, one of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history. Even though that nice old lady in the movie Ace Ventura was not a fan of Dan Marino. Dan Marino should die of gonorrhea and rot in hell. Would you like a cookie, son? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of the best scenes in that movie, Ace Ventura. Would you like a cookie? That cracks me up every time. Anyway, here was Ryan Fitzpatrick on Tuesday on his relationship with Dan Marino. Yeah, I mean, he was he was around the building a lot, uh, you know, the last two years and last year as much as he could with the COVID restrictions and everything. But uh, just just a great guy, very humble. You know, you've got one of the greatest ever 
to do it sitting in the film room with you talking ball and that's that's pretty cool it was pretty cool for me and some of the other quarterbacks in Miami to be able to do that but he's a very just normal dude I mean you could just tell that guys love playing for him because of his demeanor because of who he was the aura and the presence that he has but uh yeah we developed a really good friendship and uh you know he's he's a guy that it was fun to bounce stuff off of as we were going through it yeah, so it turns out that Dan Marino is a fan of Fitzy. Uh, what kind of things has Fitzpatrick learned from Marino? Yeah, I mean, I, a lot of it isn't isn't necessarily the X's and O's. I mean, our scheme is our scheme, and and they did what they did. But it's it's confidence. It's you know how to approach guys. It's the leadership portion of it. It's all those things, along with just the way that he carried himself and all that. Uh, those are the things, whether they come in question form or you just even watch him walk around the building, uh, those are the kind of things I think I really pick up on. And when it comes to being a leader, and I'm not a big fan of the leadership topic because it's so abstract and so impossible to really know from the outside looking in when it comes to a specific circumstance, but leadership does matter, especially at the quarterback position. And so for Fitzpatrick with Washington, which is, again, his ninth NFL team, what is his process like for getting to know his teammates and becoming a leader? Um, yeah, I mean, it's something I've, I've had to do a lot, like you touched on, and part of it is just getting to know guys on a personal level. And, and you know, last year was very difficult with – COVID and the restrictions and the virtual meetings and not being able to have that face-to-face interaction and this year as we've gone on there's there's still some stuff there that makes that difficult but uh it's it's gotten better and so some of that is now a little bit easier than it was last year and being able to have the face-to-face interactions not necessarily always making it about football but just sitting down and being guys and talking you know that kind of stuff uh I just feel like that translates so well to being a teammate and being in the huddle together and being on the field. So, um, and, a, and a lot of that isn't, it's not forced. I don't really try to make a point to do it. It's just kind of, you know, who I am and, and just normal. Yeah, leadership has to be genuine, okay? You can't be phony. You can't be a big phony. You have to lead in a way that's congruent with who you are. Otherwise, people see right through it. Few things are worse than fake leadership. And something that has been consistently said about Ryan Fitzpatrick is that he is a great leader. You can tell that he's comfortable with himself, comfortable with his career, and he knows how to connect with people. Miami Dolphins tight end Mike Kosicki called Fitzpatrick, quote, the greatest teammate I've played with, end quote. Not that Mike Kosicki is the ultimate judge of leadership, but that's pretty high praise. Like, you have to really positively impact someone for him to call you, quote, the greatest teammate I've played with, end quote. Now, also a leader on the Washington football team is Chase Young, who last December got the captaincy that was stripped from Dwayne Haskins. Chase on Tuesday sounded like a guy who is poised to have a monster second season in the NFL. You'll hear how after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. So you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. All right, we continue the Washington football team conversation. Chase Young spoke on Tuesday via post-practice press conference. The Predator, the edge rusher to end all edge rushers. Maybe, possibly, we'll see So you hopefully know by now that Chase Young's impact as a rookie last season went well beyond his seven and a half sacks in the regular season. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, you know that already. Chase Young had a terrific 2020 rookie season. He won Associated Press Defensive Rookie of the Year. Chase for the 2020 regular season had an overall grade for pro football focus of 87.2, number six among all qualified edge rushers in the NFL. Chase for the 2020 regular season had an overall grade per PFF on red zone snaps of 93.3, number one among all qualified edge rushers in the NFL. And Chase for the 2020 regular season was number seven among all qualified edge rushers in the NFL in ESPN's pass rush win rate metric. And he did all of this despite being banged up. Now, Chase only missed one game in the 2020 season, the 31-17 loss to the Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field in Week 4. He missed that game due to a groin injury that was suffered in the 34-20 loss at the Cleveland Browns in Week 3. But Chase, in a post-minicamp practice Zoom press conference on June 8th, said that he hurt his hip prior to the 27-17 win over the Philadelphia Eagles at FedEx Field in Week 1 and that the hip ailment had been what led to the groin injury. So Chase Young was more banged up in the 2020 season than we realized. Chase on Tuesday 
on how he feels now as compared to last year around this time. Yeah, um, I feel like this year, um, you know, I feel a lot better than I did last year uh, going into the season healthy. Um, you know, always feels good. Uh, you know, just going there clear-minded, man. And, um, you know, knowing that we did get better playing off each other and things like that, it's just uh, being anxious and excited at the same time for that first game. And think about those injuries that Chase dealt with last season, the hip and the groin. Obviously, those are two injuries that can drastically impact a pass rusher, especially the hip when you think about turning the corner on a pass rush. Chase on Tuesday on whether he now feels that he can turn the corner more easily as compared to last season. Oh, definitely. Most definitely. Um, got my ankles a lot stronger than last year. Um, just my feet stronger in general. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I feel a lot better. Yeah, Chase Young being truly healthy could mean a monster second NFL season for him. Now, as you may recall, Montez Sweat at his post-training camp practice press conference on August 10th said that he wants himself and Chase Young to break the record for most combined sacks in a season by two teammates in Washington or even NFL history. Quote, I personally want to go get the combined sack record that the guys got back before us. End quote. It wasn't clear whether Montez meant the NFL record for most combined sacks by two teammates in a regular season or the Washington record for most combined sacks by two teammates in a regular season. But whatever the case, that is a lofty goal. Chase Young on Tuesday on that goal. Uh, you know, I ain't gonna put no number out there, but uh, you know, I would say that we always talk about being the best. Um, and uh, you know, feel like you gotta um you gotta talk about it. To to, 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 to to one day get there, you got to mani- uh, let it manifest, as they say. So I feel like, yeah, we talk about it here and there, but um, we always talk about, you know, doing extra work and, and things like that, too. Records like this team or NFL? Um, we've talked about this team, you know, just chatting. We've looked up all the different records and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah, for the record, the record for most combined sacks by two Washington teammates in an NFL regular season is Dexter Manley and Charles Mann combining for 29 and a half sacks for the 1985 Redskins. Dexter had 15 sacks. Charles had 14 and a half sacks. The official NFL record for most combined sacks by two teammates in an NFL regular season is Chris Dolman and Keith Millard combining for 39 sacks. For the 1989 Minnesota Vikings, Dolman had 21 sacks, Millard 18 sacks. However, Pro Football Reference has Joe Klecko and Mark Gastineau having combined for 40 and a half sacks for the 1981 New York Jets. Sacks did not become an official statistic until 1982, but Pro Football Reference on July 12th updated its statistics to reflect sacks that were accumulated from 1960 through 1981. Pro Football Reference did this based on the work of John Turney and Nick Webster of the Pro Football Researchers Association. The NFL, for whatever reason, is not officially recognizing this updated sack data from Pro Football Reference. So what you now have are official sack statistics beginning with the 1982 season and unofficial sack statistics, which go from 1960 through 1981. So good luck sorting through all of that. But whatever the case may be, Chase Young on Tuesday sounded like a guy who is primed for a big second NFL season.
Well, it was an eventful Tuesday for the Nationals, and it ultimately was a successful Tuesday for the Nationals. They made a bunch of roster moves earlier in the day. I'll get to those in just a bit. And the Nats then won at night. A 5-1 win at the Miami Marlins in game one of a three-game series. Davey Martinez, if you would. I'm proud of the boys. Thank you, Davey. I appreciate that. You know, there are many sayings in baseball. Here's one that you can add to the list. When you're feeling down, just play the Marlins and you'll feel much better. The Nats now are 54 and 70, but the Marlins now are 51 and 75 and have lost eight straight. And there was nobody, and I mean nobody, at the Marlins ballpark on Tuesday night. Not that that's surprising, but what a depressing atmosphere. Official attendance was 5,394. And speaking of feeling better, Eric Fetty always feels better when he faces the Marlins. He has owned them throughout his career, and he owned them on Tuesday night. What a performance by Fetty. He was terrific. Really had one of the best starts of his major league career. One run, in six into third innings on 10 strikeouts versus six hits, a walk, and a wild pitch. The six hits were a double and five singles. He threw 69 strikes versus 34 balls on 103 pitches. His curveball was masterful. Now, the thing is this. The Marlins are an atrocious offensive team. So, for those who are saying, well, Eric Fetty has arrived, oh, no, he hasn't, okay? Like, you got to see a lot more before you can declare that, especially off how much he had been struggling. The Marlins are a putrid hitting team. The Marlins entered games on Tuesday, 26th out of 30 major league teams in team weighted runs created plus at 88. 100 is league average. Miami cannot hit, okay? So a guy like Fetty doing as he did on Tuesday night is wonderful, but you got to consider the opposition. That said, I will say Fetty was really good. And the one run he gave up wasn't even scored with him pitching. Fetty was charged with a run in the bottom of the seventh off giving up a one-out first pitch single to Jorge Alfaro, followed by a one-out six-pitch walk of Brian De La Cruz, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12. The run, though, scored with Andres Machado pitching. So Fetty was lights out. Ten strikeouts, like I said, is just tremendous. That was the Eric Fetty we saw earlier this season. It's easy to forget this. Eric Fetty over his first 10 starts this year had an ERA of 333. We had not seen that Eric Fetty in quite some time. In fact, Tuesday night's outing was Fetty's 10th start since being reinstated from the 10-day injured list, which he was on from June 27th, retroactive to June 24th to July 6th with a left oblique strain. He, over the first nine starts, allowed 31 earned runs in 41 innings. He had not been good lately. He was good on Tuesday night. So great job, Eric Fetty. Also, nice job by the Nats bullpen in this 5-1 win at the Marlins on Tuesday night. Three Nats relievers officially combined for two and two-thirds scoreless innings with six strikeouts. Yeah, Nats pitchers combined for the game, 16 strikeouts versus one walk. The three relievers were Andres Machado, Kyle McGowan, and Kyle Finnegan. Now, the net to pick would be Machado allowing an inherited runner to score. He entered the game in the bottom of the seventh with runners on first and second, went out, and the Nats leading 5 nothing. sandwiched a two-out pinch RBI single by Jesus Aguilar and a wild pitch between strikeouts for the second and third outs. Then McGowan tossed a perfect bottom of the eighth 
with two strikeouts. Very nice to see that. You know, McGowan just came off the 10-day injured list, and that's on Sunday, returned from rehab assignment and reinstated McGowan from the 10-day IL, which he had been on since July 11th due to a right biceps issue. And then Kyle Finnegan, a scoreless bottom of the ninth with two strikeouts. Finnegan now five for seven on saves. He has a 2.84 ERA on the year. Now, earlier on Tuesday, the Nats announced a number of roster moves related to the bullpen. Uh, the bullpen has been all over the place here lately. Some games actually have been pretty good, but because the Nats are going with so many young slash inexperienced slash unproven arms in the bullpen, you've seen, shall we say, a uh, high variance of performance. And some of the performances have been really bad. The Nats uh, on Tuesday recalled lefty Sam Clay from AAA Rochester. The Nats had option Clay to Rochester on August 11th. The Nats on Tuesday recalled Patrick Murphy from AAA Rochester. I'm anxious to see Patrick Murphy pitch at the major league level. So the Nats on August 14th released catcher Rene Rivera and Clay Murphy off waivers from the Toronto Blue Jays. Murphy is a guy who had dealt with control and injury issues, but he was the Blue Jays' number 16 prospect for MLB Pipeline at the time. This is a potential steal of a waiver claim engineered by the ninja Mike Rizzo, him claiming this guy Patrick Murphy off waivers from the Blue Jays, and Murphy already now is at the major league level for the Nats. The Nats optioned Gabe Klobositz to AAA Rochester. No more Klobo at the Major League level, at least for now. He had had an ERA of 556 at the Major League level. The Nats designated Jeffrey Rodriguez for assignment. He had had an ERA of 592 at the Major League level. And the Nats announced that uh, Javi Guerra, who was DFA'd on Sunday, had cleared outright waivers and declared free agency in lieu of accepting an assignment to AAA Rochester. Guerra at the Major League level this season for the Nets in ERA, I can't even say it without laughing, of 16.50. Okay, so like I said, the bullpen has been all over the place here lately, but the bullpen uh, was good in this win at the Marlins on Tuesday night. Offensively speaking for the Nets, in this win on Tuesday night. Another productive game from multiple potential building blocks for the Nats in terms of position players. The Nats have a really nice thing going on at catcher right now. Uh, everyone's still waiting for the top prospect of the Nationals, Cabert Ruiz, the catcher, to make his way to the major league level. Oh, by the way, Cabert Ruiz on Tuesday night, two home runs for AAA Rochester, but starting at the major league level at the catcher position for the Nats on Tuesday night was Tres Pereira, and he was good again. Uh, so Barrera was an at starting catcher and number seven batter in this 5-1 win at the Marlins on Tuesday night. Three for four with a two-run homer and two singles. Barrera in the top of the second had a one-out single on an 0-2 pitch. Barrera in the Nats three-run fourth had a one-out two-run homer to left field off Marlins starter and former Nats prospect Jesus Lazardo, despite having been down to the count of 1.12, the homer going a projected 395 feet for StatCast. And Barrera in the top of the fifth had a two-out single. You know, Tres Barrera for a while was hitting really well, then he cooled off. Riley Adams has been doing well, but now Barrera has caught fire again. He's been quite good offensively over these last few games. And the Nats rather suddenly have gone from having like no true encouraging young catchers in the organization to now potentially having three. This has been quite a turnaround. The Nats got Cabert Ruiz in that trade with the Los Angeles Dodgers involving Max Scherzer and Trey Turner. The Nats got Riley Adams from the Toronto Blue Jays in the Brad Hand trade. And the Nats had already had Tress Barrera, but seeing Barrera play these last few weeks, seeing Adams play these last few weeks, knowing how highly regarded Cabert Ruiz is, it's exciting to think about what the Nats may have here. 
the Nats potentially may have three young, good-hitting catchers. In Major League Baseball these days, there are so few good-hitting catchers, period, that the Nats may have three is really something else. And again, it wasn't that long ago that it felt like the Nats had nothing at the catching position. So that's really exciting. Now, we got to see more from these guys, obviously. But for now, if you want to be happy about something with the Nationals, be happy about the state of the catching position because the Nats have some things to really work with here in terms of Caber Ruiz, Tres Pereira, and Riley Adams. And, you know, not necessarily in that order. We'll kind of see uh, how things play out over time. But Caber Ruiz in the latest rankings of MLB Pipeline of the top 100 prospects in baseball, the number 19 prospect in the sport. Also doing well for the Nationals on Tuesday night, Lane Thomas, a.k.a. Mike Trout. Speaking of trades that are looking better and better as time goes on, Mike Rizzo trading John Lester to the St. Louis Cardinals for Lane Thomas already is looking like an all-time steal by the ninja Mike Rizzo. Again, the obligatory statement of, let's see what happens. But for now, Lane Thomas is slaying it for the Nats. So he was their starting center fielder and number one batter again on Tuesday night. Third consecutive game that this is the case. Now, Davey Martinez on Sunday did say that Victor Robles has been under the weather, and Victor did come off the bench in this game Uh, I do still wonder if we're seeing Davey just kind of quietly bench Victor these last few games to give Lane Thomas more of a look-see in center field, but it is quite possible that Victor has been ill, and there's nothing more to it than that. Uh, Robles coming off the bench on Tuesday night, working a leadoff six-pitch walk in the top of the ninth inning. But Lane Thomas on Tuesday night, one for four with an RBI single and a walk, and he had another outfield assist. Thomas in the top of the third, a leadoff eight-pitch walk, despite having been down to the count of 1.02. Thomas in an at's three-run fourth, a two-out RBI single on a 1-2 pitch. And then Thomas was credited with an outfield assist for the first out in the bottom of the fourth. He on a Brian Anderson double off the base of the outfield wall in right center field, played the ball so well, fired the ball to Alcides Escobar, who then threw the ball to Carter Keboom at third base, who then tagged Jesus Sanchez, who had run way past third base, and then retreated to it. Lane Thomas, over 25 plate appearances with the Nats at the major league level, 10 for 19 with a triple, two doubles, seven singles, six walks, and a stolen base, and he has two outfield assists. I looked this up on Tuesday. Lane Thomas entered games on Tuesday, having produced 0.6 wins above replacement per baseball reference over just six games. As in that, he literally was averaging a tenth of a win above replacement per game so far in his Nats tenure. And that was before he did what he did on Tuesday night. This is incredible what Lane Thomas is doing. Is it going to last? I have no idea. But you know, it's not like this guy is just some total nobody. He had been a pretty well-regarded prospect in the Cardinals organization. His stock had taken some hits, yes, but the Cardinals were nuts to trade him to the Nets for John Lester, who at the time of the trade had an ERA of 502 and a whip of 159 over 16 starts this season. Whatever, that's a Cardinals problem. The Nats have pulled off a steal with this John Lester trade, which, by the way, we should start referring to as the Lane Thomas trade. Another good game for Lane Thomas with the Nats on Tuesday night. We also saw Luis Garcia as the Nats starting second baseman and number eight batter come through with a good-looking double. Uh, He and the Nats three-run fourth had a one-out double 
on an 0-2 pitch. Some other observations from the game. Ryan Zimmerman homered for the first time in a long time. So he was the Nats starting first baseman and cleanup batter. Went one for five with three strikeouts. Left five men on base, but the one was a two-run homer. It was good to see this. Zimmerman smashing a two-run homer to left field on a 1-2 pitch from Jesus Lazardo in the top of the fifth for a 5 nothing Nats lead. The homer winner projected 415 feet for StatCast and was Zimmerman's first homer since July 25th. It had been a while. Uh, Juan Soto got on base multiple times again on Tuesday night, starting right fielder, number three batter, one for four with an intentional walk. Soto in the Nats, two-run fifth, a leadoff single. Soto in the top of the ninth, a one-out intentional walk, despite there being runners at the corners. You don't see that often in baseball. Someone intentionally walked with runners at the corners, and yet that is precisely what happened because of who Juan Soto is, his major league leading on base percentage now at 446 on the season. Also, Yadiel Hernandez had another productive game for the Nationals. Yadiel, two for four in the game with a triple and a single. He had a one-out triple down the right field line in the Nats three-run fourth, and he in the top of the second had a one-out single. Yadiel now an 826 OPS on the season. He's done a nice job. And Alcides Escobar had a nice offensive game for the Nationals on Tuesday night. Starting shortstop and number two batter, he in the game went two for five, including a really impressive double. Escobar in the top of the first, a one-out full count double, despite having been down to the count at 1.02. Escobar in the top of the ninth, a one-out first pitch single. The only real negative from a position playing standpoint for the Nats on Tuesday night was Carter Keeboom. He did not have a good game. Starting third baseman, number five batter, went 0 for 4 with a strikeout and in a scoreless Marlins bottom of the first, had a bad error, went out fielding error on a grounder by Jazz Chisholm Jr. Keeboom in the shift while essentially playing second base, just butchered the catch of a routine grounder that was hit right to him. Game two at the Marlins, Wednesday night at 7-10 and get this, we have an extreme rarity in baseball, a battle of two of the top pitching prospects in baseball, Josiah Gray versus Edward Cabrera. Gray is the number 54 prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. Cabrera is the number 30 prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline and will be making his major league debut. How rare is something like this per MLB pipeline? When Gray and the Nats take on Cabrera and the Marlins on Wednesday night, it will mark the second time since 2004 that a preseason top 100 prospect will debut against another preseason top 100 prospect. So this is going to be a fascinating watch. Josiah Gray has been so good for the Nats so far. Four starts. He, over those four starts, has tossed 22 innings. He, over those 22 innings, has an ERA of 286 and a whip of 105. The issue has been the home run. He, with the Nats, has allowed seven homers, although all of them have been solo homers. Now, while we're talking prospects, how about what the Nationals did on Tuesday? The Nats on Tuesday promoted three players from AA Harrisburg to AAA Rochester, among them starting pitcher Cade Cavalli. The potential ace of the future for the Nats is now a step closer to the major league level. You already have Josiah Gray at the major league level. You got a step closer to having Cade Cavalli at the major league level with him on Tuesday being promoted from AA Harrisburg to AAA Rochester. Cade Cavalli, per MLB Pipeline's latest rankings of the top 100 prospects, is the number 41 prospect in all of baseball. And he has been great so far 
this year. So the Nats took Cavalli with the number 22 pick in the 2020 MLB draft out of Oklahoma. He began this season pitching for the High A Wilmington Blue Rocks. He then got promoted to the Double A Harrisburg Senators, and he now has been promoted to the Triple A Rochester Red Wings. Entering Tuesday, Cade Cavalli was number one in all of minor league baseball with 151 strikeouts. No one at any level of the minors had accumulated more strikeouts this season than Cade Cavalli at 151, and the 151 strikeouts have come over just 98 and two-thirds innings. That works out to a strikeouts per nine innings of 13.77, which is outstanding. This is only his age 22 season. He has had some issues with walks since being promoted to AA Harrisburg, so the Nats want him to work on his control. I don't know that we're going to see him at the major league level this season. I would not dismiss it because what you almost always see with well-regarded prospects who are killing it in the minors is that those prospects get called up to the majors sooner than anybody thinks. So I would not wipe off the table the idea of Cade Cavalli pitching at the major league level this season. But I tend to think you don't promote the guy to AAA just to have him make, you know, I don't know, two or three starts and then call him up to the majors. I, I would think this is, hey, we want you to pitch at the AAA level the rest of this minor league season. Uh, there's been a lot of talk of the Nats having Cade Cavalli pitch in the Arizona Fall League this offseason, and then next year it is on. And uh, assuming there's a season on time, we'll see, because there is looming CBA Armageddon in Major League Baseball. Cade Cavalli can be battling for a spot in the national season opening rotation. Although if the service time rules are still the same post the CBA negotiations, there's no way I would start next season with Cade Cavalli at the major league level. Wait until you can gain that extra year of team control and then call him up to the majors. It would be moronic to start the season with Cade Cavalli at the major league level only to lose a year of team control for the guy. Like that would be dopey. But awesome to see Cade Cavalli doing as he's doing this year. The other two guys who the Nats promoted from AA Harrisburg to AAA Rochester, starter Seth Romero and reliever Andrew Lee. The notable guy out of those two is Romero. When we talk about the fall of the Nationals farm system, and this has been some fall, there's no doubt about that. A guy who really epitomizes that is Seth Romero. Uh, This has been a total bust of a first round pick so far. The Nats took Romero with the number 25 pick in the 2017 MLB draft. There were red flags all over the place. Seth Romero was suspended twice from the University of Houston, was ultimately dismissed from the program. He was actually sent home from 2018 Nats spring training for repeated curfew violations as the Nats did something you almost never see a team do, and that is the Nats told a player to go away. The Nats told Seth Romero at 2018 spring training, get out, leave. We don't want you here anymore. And then he underwent Tommy John surgery on August 30th, 2018. He actually pitched for the Nats in three games as a reliever at the major league level in the 2020 season. But, you know, Romero this year, it's not like he was doing great work for AA Harrisburg in terms of the overall run prevention. Six starts for the Senators. He had an ERA of 531. Now, he did have great strikeout numbers, uh, strikeouts per nine innings of 15.05. But I think with Seth Romero, the Nats look at him right now and they're like, okay, it's put up or shut up time, kid. And especially given the state of things for us at the major league level, the Nats are having Sean Nolan make starts for them these days. Uh, Let's see if Seth Romero can maybe be fast-tracked to make a few starts or at least a few appearances for the Nats uh, in the month of September. This season is already Seth Romero's age. 
2025 season. One more item on the Nationals when it comes to prospects and the farm system. Uh, Coming out on Tuesday was MLB Pipeline's rankings of the farm systems in baseball. The Nats did come in as having the number 20 farm system in baseball. That's not good, but that is a lot better than what the Nats had been showing up as. The Nats farm system and MLB Pipeline's three previous rankings had been number 30 for this past preseason, number 30 in the 2020 midseason, and number 29 in the 2020 preseason. So to go from 30th most recently to 20th in these latest rankings that came out on Tuesday, that's progress. And that's all about the sell-off, or at least mostly about the sell-off. The Nats trading away eight players for 12 prospects in late July. Some people didn't like it. Some people whined and cried about it, but I was all in on it. I thought it was 100% the right move. And with the likes of Josiah Gray and Cabert Ruiz and Lane Thomas and Riley Adams and a bunch of other guys who we have yet to see, I think you already should have some good vibes and positive feelings about what the Nats decided to do late last month. So it is time now for our usual Orioles segment toward the end of the show. And you may be expecting me to talk about the Orioles losing streak, reaching 19 games, the Orioles suffering a 14-8 loss to the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Tuesday night in game one of a three-game series. The O's now two losses away from tying their American League modern-day record of 21 consecutive losses, which we, of course, saw in the infamous 0-21 start to the 1988 season. And we can get to all that if you want. You got people going nuts over this losing streak, and that's fine. But if you're a smart baseball fan, if you're a smart Orioles fan, the item from Tuesday that sticks with you the most is not this 19-game losing streak. The item that sticks with you the most is the MLB Pipeline Rankings of the farm systems in baseball. MLB Pipeline on Tuesday ranked the Orioles as having the number one farm system in baseball. Baseball America, now two Mondays ago, August 16th, ranked the Orioles as having the number two farm system in all of baseball. MLB Pipeline on Tuesday ranked the O's as having the number one farm system in baseball. This is further validation of something I said last week on the podcast, and I will say right now, the Orioles rebuild is working. Yes, it is. Let all the ninnies go nuts over the losing streak. And look, the losing streak is not fun, okay? Like, I'm not trying to say that this losing streak is a great thing. It isn't. But what matters the most right now, if you're an Orioles fan, is not this 19-game losing streak. What matters the most right now are these farm system rankings and these prospect rankings that have come out over the last few weeks. And Orioles farm system that was barren not that long ago is now the envy of baseball. The Orioles have the number one farm system in baseball per MLB pipeline. I'm going to say this again. The Orioles rebuild is working. The Orioles have the consensus number one prospect in baseball in catcher Adley Rutschman. The Orioles have the consensus number one pitching prospect in baseball in starter Grayson Rodriguez. The Orioles rebuild is working. 
Now, to the losing streak. No doubt. Not good. 14-8 loss to the Angels at Camden Yards on Tuesday night. The losing streak refuses to die. That's true. Is it embarrassing? Yes, it is. Is it painful? No doubt. Is this fun? Absolutely not, okay? But this is what you're looking at here. This is the price you have to pay to get this team back in a good place. And chances are the losing streak is going to keep going here, okay? Because guess who is starting game two of this series for the Angels on Wednesday night? Shohei Otani. Yeah, only the single biggest star in baseball this season. It will be showtime at Camden Yards on Wednesday night at 7.05. Otani this season, 18 starts. He has an ERA at 2.79. He has a strikeouts per nine innings of 10.8. So good luck to the birds at the major league level. The losing streak reaching 20 seems like a near certainty. The record and the run differential are only going to get worse here moving forward. The O's now are a major league worst 38 and 86 with a major league worst run differential of minus 239. And you know what? Jimmy Crackcorn, and I don't care, okay? Because if you're an Orioles fan, what matters the most is the Orioles farm system now is elite. Whether the Orioles this season at the major league level lose 100 games or 110 games or 115 games doesn't matter. And actually, if you're being like ultra logical about things, you could say the more losses, the better. So the Orioles get the number one overall pick in the 2022 MLB draft and boost that farm system even more. It will be an abundance of goodies in the minors for the Orioles moving forward uh, with their likely number one overall pick, number two overall pick, whatever it ends up being in that 2022 MLB draft. Oh, by the way, okay, as wretched as the Orioles are right now at the major league level, and they are wretched, okay, especially the pitching. I mean, Spencer Watkins could not be worse. Spencer Watkins on Tuesday night struggled for a sixth consecutive start, eight runs in two innings. He gave up a homer, a triple, a double, four singles, a hit by pitch, and a wild pitch. He did have three strikeouts versus no walks, but the guy is just non-functional right now, okay? He was kind of a nice story initially. He had been good in each of his first three major league starts for the O's this season, but since then, he's been an absolute mess, and it's not like this guy was some top pick, okay? He was taken by the Detroit Tigers in the 30th round of the 2014 MLB draft. But you know what else happened in this 14-8 loss to the Angels at Camden Yards on Tuesday night? Ryan Mountcastle homered twice. A potential building block for the Orioles is really doing well here lately. Mountcastle was the Orioles starting first baseman at number two batter. He smashed two homers in this game. A one-out full count solo shot off Angels starter and former Oriole Dylan Bundy in the bottom of the first despite having been down in the count at 1.12. And Mountcastle had a leadoff homer on a 1-2 pitch in the bottom of the sixth inning. Mountcastle now this season, 23 home runs. He has a 495 slugging percentage. That matters. This guy is blossoming before our eyes this season as a legitimate major league batter. Uh, Anthony Santander had a good game on Tuesday night. He was the Orioles starting right fielder and cleanup batter. He went four for five with a two-run homer that went on to Utah Street, two doubles and a single. Also, the O's have recalled infielder Jamai Jones from AAA Norfolk. The O's made a bunch of roster moves on Tuesday. I think the most significant one was that one. So Jamai Jones is the player who the O's got back this past February for Alex Cobb in the trade with the Angels, interestingly enough. The O's in February traded Cobb and Cash 
to the Angels for second base prospect Jemai Jones. He was out there as the O starting second baseman and number eight batter on Tuesday night. Did go 0 for 4 with three strikeouts. But these are the things that matter. So yeah, is a losing streak likely to get to 20 on Wednesday night with Shohei Otani pitching against the Orioles? Probably. But so what? The Orioles have the number one farm system in baseball per MLB pipeline. If you're an Orioles fan, that's what matters. And if you're an Orioles fan, keep saying my mantra to yourself, pain now, pleasure later. Pain now, pleasure later. Again, the rebuild is working. All right, that will do it for you and me. But just for now, we'll be together again soon. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 131, will feature much more on the Washington football team and will feature plenty on what shapes up to be a big baseball night on Wednesday night. Game two for the Nationals at the Miami Marlins, a battle of two of the top pitching prospects in the sport in Josiah Gray versus Edward Cabrera. And yes, game two for the Orioles against the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. The O's trying to prevent their 19-game losing streak from continuing. Or are they? (laughs) They'll be facing Shohei Otani. Have a great rest of your Wednesday. I'll talk to you on Thursday. Dan Marino should die of gonorrhea and rot in hell. Would you like a cookie, son? <laughs>